Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagani Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 2nd, 2016. Praise Yahweh to God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are going to present part 11 of our Hebrews presentation. I thought we'd be finished with Hebrews by the end of the year, and the year is closing far too quickly. There's a hashtag on social media which proclaims no need for Jesus and which is contributed to mostly by Jews who have taken who have taken to making anti-Christian memes. Typically these memes seek to point out seeming discrepancies in Old Testament scriptures with declarations found in the New Testament. Most of these memes cannot be adequately answered by Judaized denominational Christians who do not understand the true relationships between Yahweh and his people Israel, which are expressed in the covenants. But identity Christians should be able to answer all of these contentions of the Antichrists without too much difficulty or elaboration. For example, one meme quotes Judges chapter 2, verse 1, where Yahweh is recorded as having said to the Israelites that, I will never break my covenant with you. And in fact, he did say that. But the Jews who created the meme are being dishonest as usual. They neglect to observe that in the same place Yahweh chastised the Israelites for not keeping the conditions which were imposed under that covenant in Judges chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 and forward. For this reason we said in our presentation of Hebrews chapter 9 in part 10 of this series that the promises made under the Old Covenant were conditional upon Israel's behavior and Israel failed. Because Israel sinned, Yahweh is under no obligation to uphold his end of the bargain as his promises to Israel in Exodus chapter 19 were all conditional. Of course, the covenants were never made with Jews in the first place, but the denominational churches cannot understand that either. Another such meme, which appears quite often, points out places in the Old Testament where Yahweh forgave individuals for their sins. Psalm 32.5 and 2 Samuel 12.13 are often used examples. The contention of the meme is that since Yahweh forgave sins before Christ, that there is really no need for Jesus. But the Jews who created this meme do not at all observe the religious and historical context of propitiation for sin, which we've discussed at length up to this point in our presentation of Hebrews. Yahweh forgave the sins of individuals under the Old Covenant. But once the children of Israel became alienated from God, which we see in all of the books of the prophets, then there was no such thing as that there was no such forgiveness for sin. So as it says in Ezekiel chapter 33, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. However, there was a promise of reconciliation. As we have also described 
in our presentation of Hebrews chapter 9 in part 9 of this series, after the Babylonian destruction of the first temple, there was no Ark of the Covenant and no mercy seat. So under the law, there could be no propitiation for sin. So none of the sins of the children of Israel were ever forgiven after the deportations to Babylon. Throughout the second temple period, while sacrifices were conducted, there could be no propitiation without a mercy seat, which was the seat of propitiation. Without Christ, there is no forgiveness for sin at all. However, only the children of Israel, who were all at one time under the law, could commit sin, and therefore Christ could only forgive them. Knowing who the children of Israel are in the world today is the key to understanding true Christianity. For that reason, Christ would never forgive the Jews anyway, since they are his enemies and not his people. Those who call themselves Jews are actually Edomites and Canaanites, the synagogue of Satan. So, of course, the Jews naturally have no need for Jesus. Neither does, Christ, does Jesus have a need for them. But Christians should not be deceived by their lies. However, we are not arguing with Jews for the sake of Jews. Rather, we will post our answers on the same social media, under the same hashtags, and ignore the Jews themselves. In this manner, we hope to show denominational Christians that we do have the appropriate answers to the Antichrist contentions, where their own pastors do not have any answers at all. Christian identity is the only answer to Jewish treachery. And while today people debate as to whether or not there was really a Holocaust, or even whether or not there was really a Jesus, one day, and that day is coming, one day people will come to debate as to whether or not there were ever actually any Jews. Here we will begin our, our presentation of part 11 of Paul's, of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. And this is subtitled, Perpetual Propitiation in Christ. In the earlier chapters of this epistle to the Hebrews, Paul sought to persuade his readers of the temporary nature of the Levitical priesthood as opposed to the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek, which is inherited by Yahshua Christ, as David had announced in the Psalms. Then with Hebrews chapter 8, Paul began comparing the temporary expiations for sin, which were under the law, to the eternal propitiation for sin which is in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 9, Paul connected the propitiation for sin in Christ directly to the promise of a new covenant which is found in the prophet Jeremiah. And we have seen that the children of Israel have an eternal inheritance which is not dependent upon any works or sacrifices made by men but which is solely dependent upon the promises which Yahweh had made to Abraham. The keeping of the promises to Abraham being the ultimate reason for the making of a new covenant. We also see that only the children of Israel, those who were under the old covenant, could possibly have any part with Christ in the new covenant. 
Doing all of this, Paul has cited a fair portion of the Old Testament scriptures in order to confirm his assertions, and we hope to have elucidated many of the scriptures which he had not cited, but which further support those assertions. Here in Hebrews chapter 11, Paul continues to contrast the propitiation for sin, which was under the law, to that which is in Christ. But we must be careful to distinguish the fact that Paul never sought to set aside the commandments of the law. Rather, in Hebrews chapter 9, Paul made a reference to the dead works, which is a reference to the rituals, sacrifices, and ceremonies of the law, and not to the commandments themselves. And in fact, since Paul of Tarsus had written in Romans chapter 4, that where there is no law, there is no transgression. And in Romans chapter 5, that sin is not imputed where there is no law. If the commandments of the law are done away with, then Paul would never have had any further need to discuss or to describe either sin or forgiveness. Yet where Paul said in his first epistle to Timothy that, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. We see that Paul believed that men can still sin. So the commandments of the law must still be in effect. And Paul never attempted to set them aside. With this understanding, and in the context of Paul's words, both here and in chapter 10 of this epistle, and in the previous verses of chapter 9 of this epistle, we must recognize that where Paul speaks of the law, of the works of the law, he is speaking of the ritual sacrifices and ceremonies of the law, which were conducted in order to obtain propitiation for sin, and as this epistle opens, he is still, even though he mentions merely the law, he is still referring to those ritual sacrifices and ceremonies. Paul is not intending to describe the commandments of the law. If he were, he would never have made a reference to sin in verse 26 of this same chapter. There, according to the King James Version, Paul said that if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, and if the commandments were not in effect, then there would be no commandments against which one may commit sin. So once again, we see that Paul never set aside the commandments of the law. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to sin if there were no commandments, according to what Paul said in Romans chapter 4, in Romans chapter 5. And that absolutely is common sense. Therefore, here in Hebrews chapter 10, speaking of the works of the law, which are the things conducted by the priests, he says, For the law, having a shadow of the coming good, and not itself the image of the matters, each year with the same sacrifices, which they, a reference to the high priests, offer in perpetuity, is never able to perfect those coming forth. 
that pronoun they in the phrase they offer, is a reference to the high priest which Paul has been discussing and comparing to Christ throughout the previous verses, the verses in chapter 9. The context has not changed merely because the chapter numbers of our modern Bibles have changed. Here we're going to discuss a couple of the differences in the manuscripts in this verse, and that will assist us in the discussion of the verse itself. The phrase, not itself, the 3rd century papyrus P46 wants that phrase for the words translated not itself in verse 1, and it has a conjunction instead, and in that single papyrus, the only copy we have that has this this difference, the first clause of the verse would be read, for the law having a shadow of the coming good and the image of the matters, and that's a pretty serious difference. We are nearly persuaded to change our translation to reflect that reading, because in Hebrews chapter 8, Paul had said that the priests making dedications at the altar were a pattern and shadow of those in heavenly places. However, on the other hand, it may be argued that there Paul was speaking of the actions of the priests, while here he is only speaking of the law itself. There is another difference among the manuscripts which is related to the same issue, where the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Ephraimisiri have the plural verb are, rather than the singular verb is, in the final clause of the verse, which reads, which they, the priests, offer in perpetuity, are never able to perfect those coming forth. So those manuscripts seem to be reflecting the understanding that it is the sacrifices, or maybe the priests, which were never able to bring sinners to perfection, and not law itself. In this regard, our text follows the 3rd century papyrus P46, and the codices Claromontanus, Coislinianus, and the unnamed 6th century codex O285. So we have serious differences, a serious division in the readings of the codices. As in for this verse, for this particular verse, as Paul describes it in Hebrews chapter 9, we would rather believe that the first temple, in conjunction with the things which the priests did there, were a parable for the present time, and therefore being a parable, were also a shadow of the coming good, whereby the law itself is not the image of the matters. It is the service of the priests for their community which was the image of the matters. And under the new covenant, that service is found only in Christ himself. So this is one example where the context of Paul's writing was the determining factor when deciding which of the manuscripts to follow for our translation, and we wanted to make an example of that method here. But even then, we being merely fallible men, should nevertheless consider the other possibilities, and that is the reason for these notes. Paul continues to describe the shortcomings of temporal sacrifices in verse 2. Since would they not stop being offered? 
because those serving, having been cleansed once for all, no longer are to have consciousness of errors. And here Paul offers a rhetorical question, which further explains his statement that the sacrifices offered under the law were never able to perfect those for whom they were offered. If they were, then they may have stopped being offered, rather than needing to be offered continually. Having to do something perpetually with the hope of achieving perfection proves that one can never achieve perfection through the action. Continuing, he answers his own question with a short disputation, and he says that rather, this is verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 10, rather, in these, in the compulsion to make these sacrifices every year, in these are a recollection of errors each year, or of sins each year. So Paul asserts that compounding the failure of the old covenant sacrifices to bring men to perfection is the fact that the sacrifices themselves continually reminded men of their sins rather than relieving men of their guilty consciences. Then he adds to his argument in verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away errors or sins. In their sin offerings, the children of Israel were actually paying a sort of municipal fine by forfeiting a portion of their property in their expiation for sin. In turn, the death of the animal they forfeited represented or took place of the death of the sinner. The fine does not remove the fact that an incident happened, but once it is paid, it relieves the possibility of any further punishment by satisfying the authority in question for having committed an act in violation of the law. Thus it was under the Old Covenant, where the sin offering was an expiation, but it does not erase the fact that sin had been committed. So Paul continues, On which account, and this next phrase is pretty important, on which account coming into the society, he says, or into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have prepared a body for me. Burnt offering also for errors you have not been pleased with. Then I said, behold, I come. In a chapter of a book it is written concerning me that I will do O Yahweh, your will. We didn't want to change the order of the original words wherever we did not have to, but that last phrase may of course have been written, that I come to do your will, O Yahweh. The English word chapter is derived from the Latin word capitulum, which is a diminutive of the word kaput, or head. The Greek phrase, which appears here, enkephalidi, 
is in a chapter here. And the root word kephalis is the diminutive form of the Greek word kephale, which is a head. So in this context, kephalis, which is a little head, capitulum, which is Latin for a little head, and the English word which was derived from it, chapter, are all equivalent in meaning, the heading on a new section of a book. While writers sometimes use the word kephalis to refer to the scroll itself, here the phrase enkephaliti is followed by the word biblion, which in turn is the diminutive of biblis, or book. The word biblion could also refer to a paper, scroll, or letter. The King James Version has volume instead, and Brenton's Septuagint translation followed in that same manner, and that's all fine. Here in verses 5-7, through seven, Paul is making a direct quotation from Psalm 40, verses 6-8. to eight. From the Septuagint, Paul's Greek varies only slightly from the Septuagint manuscripts employed by Brenton, and Brenton translated the relevant passage to read from Psalm 40, verse 6. Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, or thou did not desire, but a body hast thou prepared for me. Now some manuscripts have ears rather than a body. Whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin thou did not require. And Paul's Greek here has thou hast not been pleased with. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the volume of the book it is written concerning me. I desired to do thy will, O my God. And Paul's word here, Paul's version here wants the verb for desire. I come to do thy will. And thy law in the midst of mine heart. And this last phrase Paul cut off. Paul cut off his quotation before the last phrase of verse 8. And this will become important to us later. Because later in the chapter he will expound on the same subject. The law inscribed on the hearts of the children of Israel. But he will quote it not from the balance of this psalm. Instead, he will quote it from Jeremiah chapter 31, where it appears in connection to the New Covenant. Note that Paul informs his readers that these words were spoken of Yahweh himself, or of Christ, coming into the society or world. David wrote the words, but they could not have been written for David's coming into the world. Quoting earlier Psalms, Paul had um, Paul had asserted that those psalms also introduce the firstborn son into the society or world. Thus it is here. Neither is David. These psalms couldn't have been written for David's coming into the world, and neither is David prophesied of in any such manner in the earlier scriptures. Therefore, it becomes evident here that the organization of the kingdom during the time which David had written these words was for the greater purpose of announcing the coming of the Messiah. 
since David, according to Paul, wrote these words upon his coming into the society, a reference to Christ, or to God. Christ is God. The scriptures being an announcement of that coming. Paul says, on which account coming into the society, he says. And both the pronoun and the verb must refer to Yahweh himself, for whom David was writing prophetically. So to Paul of Tarsus, the entire Old Testament history of Israel served the purpose of introducing the Christ to the children of God. As he said in chapter 9 of this epistle, the Old Testament and its trappings were merely a parable for the present time. We must also note that in Hebrews chapter 9, we have seen that the world which Christ came into was the world which was founded at Mount Sinai as the children of Israel were organized into a kingdom under Yahweh their God and his law. And that is the world of which Paul speaks. So the word world, to Paul of Tarsus, does not mean the planet. This is evident in Hebrews chapter 9, where Paul had written in reference to the Levitical high priests that it was necessary for him to suffer often from the foundation of the world. As a digression, this is a different topic and another digression. As a digression, here is a little known, or perhaps even unknown, so I'm really sticking my neck out here, right? an unknown aspect of the Psalms, because I've never seen this anywhere. In the Septuagint, this 40th Psalm that Paul has just quoted begins with the words, For the end, a Psalm of David, and perhaps 54 others of the Psalms in the Septuagint begin with those same words, For the end, a Psalm of David. The Masoretic text frequently has confusing or obscure words in place of this phrase. But on a couple of occasions, it does indicate that a psalm was written for a feast or for a fulfillment or even for death, which is a sort of fulfillment. The Greek word for end in those 55 psalms is telos, and telos may also mean a fulfillment, a completion, or a consummation. A related word is telias, which basically describes something having reached its end, or which is finished, or complete, or perfect. We have an adjective and a noun here, right? Writing in the 5th century B.C., the Greek historian Herodotus, in Book 9 of his Histories, chapter 110, had made the following statement concerning a certain Persian feast where he was speaking of the Queen of the Persians. Now you're going to think I'm nuts for sticking this into such a conversation of the Psalms, but the way that Herodotus had translated this concept of a Persian feast into Greek, 
may indeed give us insight into the way that the Hebrews use this word, which means and or fulfillment, as it was translated from the Hebrew copy of the Psalms into the Septuagint copy of the Psalms. And Herodotus wrote of this Queen of the Persians that she waited, therefore, till her husband gave the great royal banquet, a feast which takes place once every year in celebration of the king's birthday. Tikta, the feast is called in the Persian tongue, at least Herodotus imagined that, which in our language may be rendered perfect, and Tikta does mean according to modern commentators on the Greek of Herodotus, Tikta does mean a sort of eating in ancient Persian, or at least that's how what's what what's said today. So Tikta is a feast which is called as it's called in the Persian tongue, which in our language may be rendered perfect and Perfect, in that passage of the Greek of Herodotus, is from the Greek word telias. Our point here is that where in the Septuagint it is said that many of David's psalms were written for the end, if the Hebrew usage was anything like the Persian, then here we learn that they may have been written for a banquet, or for a feast, as there were many such occasions on the Hebrew calendar. Then, prophetically, speaking of the true end, which is also a feast, there is the prophesied wedding feast of the Lamb, and the final perfection, which all Christians await. Here Paul explains his intentions for quoting the passage, this passage of the 40th Psalm. Saying above, meaning what he had just written, saying above, sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings also for errors, you have not desired, nor have you been pleased with, which are offered in accordance with the law, then he said, Behold, I come that I will do your will. The majority text inserts the words, O God, there. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. In other words, he takes away the sacrifices and offerings, that he may establish the actual performance of the will of God. True perfection is therefore doing the will of God and cannot be obtained through the works of men, where one falls short of the will of God. Therefore, as an example to men, Christ himself had asserted, as it is recorded in John chapter 5, that I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father who has sent me. In the earlier chapters of this epistle, 
Paul had already cited several others of David's psalms as prophecies of Christ. In order to establish both his advent as the anointed son, Psalm 2, and his inheritance of the Melchizedek priesthood, Psalm 110, now Paul is asserting that the 40th Psalm is also a prophecy which refers to Yahshua Christ, who has come to establish a new priesthood, which, as we have already seen, is actually an old and transcendent priesthood in place of the failed Levitical priesthood. Referring to the first and second, Paul is once again referring back to the Old and New Covenants, as he had described them in Hebrews chapter 8, where he said, For if that first was faultless, a place would not have been sought for a second. He had continued to refer to them in this manner in the opening verses of Hebrews chapter 9. We had seen while discussing Hebrews chapter 8, that where Paul had quoted from Jeremiah chapter 31, there is an explicit promise of a new covenant for the people of Israel, where the words of the prophet in the Septuagint are in the future tense. Then, along with various other such promises of a future covenant in Scripture, such as those found in Ezekiel, it is fully evident that Paul had every right to consider the Sinai covenant to be both the first and the old covenant as Christians should consider it in that same manner today, in spite of all the protestations of the wicked Jews. So now Paul speaks of the second or new covenant, considering the will of Yahweh God that was accomplished by Christ. And he says in verse 10, in which will, in God's will, in which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Yahshua Christ once for all. Sanctification is a separation of something so that it may be devoted to the purposes of God. If anyone is sanctified in the will of God, as it is said in the 40th Psalm that Christ came to do his will, then only the people then the only people who can possibly be sanctified in Christ are those same old covenant children of Israel who were promised such sanctification by the will of God expressed in the Old Testament. This sanctification is described in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 33 to 34, directly in relation to the promise of the new covenant. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they, those same children of Israel, shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh. For they all shall know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will, I will remember their sin no more. In connection with the new covenant. Other aspects of this sanctification are promised in relation to a new and future covenant in Ezekiel chapter 37, where we read from verse 26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. 
and I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them for evermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them, yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the nation shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them for evermore. It does not say that any other nations will be sanctified. Rather, it only says that the nations shall know that Israel is sanctified. We would contend that those nations are the same nations prophesied to come of the children of Israel, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4 and elsewhere. But in any case, the will of God in the Old Testament, and what good would the will references to the will of God be if it wasn't in the Old Testament? The will of God in the Old Testament informs us that the sanctification of the body of Christ is the sanctification of the people of Israel in fulfillment of the promises of a new covenant. Attempting to put anyone but the children of Israel under the covenants of God is not in his will as it is expressed in scripture, but rather it is a violation of his will. So Christ said that he came but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So where Paul wrote that the body of Christ was offered once for all, by saying all, he only means all of those of the children of Israel, who were once under the first covenant. This is evident where he quoted Jeremiah in Hebrews chapter 8, and said that for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with them, the children of Israel, he saith, Behold, the day is come, saith Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, the same children of Israel. And then it is evident again in Hebrews chapter 9, where he said of Christ, where Paul wrote of Christ, from verse 15, that for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. If one's ancestors did not transgress under the first covenant, then what is not of the house of Israel or the house of Judah in order to qualify for that redemption of the transgressions which is under the new covenant? All of the body of Christ was under the first covenant. And all of those who were under the first covenant were called to be under the second or new covenant. The language which Paul uses never separates either of the covenants from the genetic and legitimate children of Israel, but always explicitly connects both covenants to those children of Israel throughout all of his epistles. Paul continues to describe the shortcomings under the Old Covenant in verse 11 and each priest some manuscripts have and each high priest and each priest stands daily serving and offering the same sacrifices often which at no time have been able to remove errors and the sacrifices were only an expiation for sin, 
And even when Yahweh had mercy and propitiated the sins, the sins were not really removed, and the people never ceased from sin. Rather, they sinned more and more. So we read of Ephraim from Hosea chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke trembling, meaning that when he was humbling himself, he exalted himself in Israel, because the humble are exalted. But when he offended in Baal, he died. And now they sin more and more. And have made them molten images of their silver, and idols according to their own understanding. All of it the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, Let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. And likewise Judah, which did not even learn from history, continued to sin even after the chastisement by the Assyrians. So the word of Yahweh says of Judah in Ezekiel chapter 16, written perhaps not a hundred years later, Thou hast moreover multiplied thy fornication in the land of Canaan unto Chaldea, and yet thou was not satisfied herewith. Neither had Samaria, meaning Ephraim, committed half of thy sins, but thou hast multiplied thine abominations more than they, and hast justified thy sisters in all thine abominations which thou hast done. While these judgments were uttered on a national level, the same chastisement is seen in the prophets on a more personal level. For instance, in Amos chapter 4, Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal multiply transgression, and bring your sacrifices every morning, and your tithes after three years, and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven, and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this you like, O you children of Israel, saith Yahweh God. And I also have given you, meaning in punishment, cleanness of teeth in all your cities, which means famine, and want of bread in all your places, which is a Hebrew parallelism. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith Yahweh. This is evident, this sin on a personal level is evident once more in Hosea chapter 9. Rejoice not, O Israel, for joy, as other people. For thou hast gone a-whoring from thy God. Thou hast loved the reward upon every corn floor. The floor in the winepress shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. They shall not dwell in Yahweh's land. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean things in Assyria. Egypt representing captivity. They shall not offer wine offerings to Yahweh, neither shall they be pleasing unto him, as Paul had described here, quoting from the 40th Psalm, that their sacrifices were not pleasing to God. Their sacrifices shall be unto them as the bread of mourners. All that eat thereof shall be polluted, and their bread for their soul shall not come into the house of Yahweh. So in these writings, we see that the sacrifices were useless so long as the people continued to sin. Therefore, all of Israel was ultimately estranged. They were all divorced from their God, and they were offered reconciliation only in Christ. So Paul continues in verse 12, and he says, But this, one sacrifice having been offered in perpetuity for errors or sins, 
has sat down at the right hand of Yahweh. This is the fourth time and final time in this epistle that Paul has cited the opening verse of the 110th Psalm in relation to Christ. It is also cited in this manner in three of the Gospels and in the Book of Acts and in several other of Paul's epistles. Here Paul very clearly states that Yahshua Christ has offered himself once as a single propitiation for all sins forever, as the King James Version translates the phrase which we have rendered as in perpetuity here. The adjective isn't the normal word that the King James represents as forever. The adjective here is Dienekes means continuous, unbroken, or as an adverb, continuously, from beginning to end. And for that reason we have rendered it as perpetuity. There is another passage in the King James Version, which some commentators abused, or actually abused, even commentators like the pudgy little Jew that calls himself a Christian identity pastor, has abused in order to insist that Christ only forgave past sins. This is found at Romans 3.25, which is translated in that King James Version to read, whom God, speaking of Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. So this passage of Hebrews seems to be in conflict with that passage of Romans. But in reality, it is only the King James translation which has caused the conflict. In the Christogenian New Testament, the same passage is read in this manner speaking of Christ, the same passage of Romans chapter 3. Whom Yahweh set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood for a display of his justice by means of the pretermission of forthcoming sins by the tolerance of Yahweh for the display of his justice in the present time for he is just and accepting of him that is from the faith of Yahshua. In part 4 of our commentary on the Epistle to the Romans, we explained at length how the verb proginomahi means forthcoming and not past. And here we feel that we are vindicated for our translation of Romans 3.25. Christ being the lamb slain from the foundation of the society, or world, Yahweh, in his divine providence, understood from the beginning that at a certain point in the future he would have to offer himself for all sin as an example to the children of Israel and in order to keep both his own law and the promises made under the fathers, which were even then forthcoming. So Paul had written in Romans chapter 5, speaking of the transgression of Adam, that as that one transgression is for all men for a sentence of condemnation, 
in this manner, meaning in the manner in which Christ had offered himself for our sins, in this manner then through one decision of judgment, for all men is for a judgment of life. In this manner, and according to the word of Yahweh, all of Israel shall indeed be saved, without exception, and regardless of whether any particular person agrees. Sadly, there are not a few identity Christians who actually continue to despise us for teaching this undeniable aspect of the scripture, even though it also is found in both the Old and the New Testaments. As it says in Micah chapter 7, from verse 18, Who is a God like unto thee, that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. As Christ said, and quoted Hosea several times, It is mercy I desired, and not sacrifice. And Micah 7.19, he will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins, all their sins, into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. So, for the sake of the promises to Abraham, all of the sins of the children of Israel are being cast into the depths of the sea. Likewise, it says in Jeremiah chapter 33, And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. And in these cases, concerning sin, there is no exception to all. It is easily determined that Paul is only repeating what he had learned from the scriptures. For instance, from where we see the same promises in Isaiah chapter 45, Tell ye, and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I Yahweh? And there is no God beside thee. A just God and a Savior, there is none beside thee. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And that's a metaphor for the children of Israel who were scattered to the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Surely shall one say, In Yahweh have I righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. In Yahweh shall all the seed, not all twelve tribes, as some pretenders in Christian identity 
attempt to assert. All the seed, every individual, all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. If all of the seed of Israel shall be justified in Yahweh, as we see in Isaiah, if all of the sins of Israel are cleansed in perpetuity, a statement from Paul, which we see was also promised in Jeremiah and in Micah, then all of Israel shall certainly be saved, and there are no stated exceptions. But Paul continues by distinguishing the people of God, those being sanctified from the enemies of God, those whom he will trot upon. Hereafter awaiting until his enemies are placed as a footstool for his feet. Finishing the citation or the reference to Psalm 110. With one offering he has perfected for perpetuity those being sanctified. So Paul repeats the idea. I guess in case you didn't understand it the first time. Those who doubt that all Israel shall be saved, as the scripture says rather explicitly, are are actually challenging the sovereignty of Yahweh over his creation. That's what they're doing. As it says in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. This is also evident in the book of Genesis and elsewhere in scripture. However, man found death at the hands of the enemies of Yahweh, something which is not better explained until Revelation chapter 12, where it is made evident that a war between forces greater than Adam is being continued here in this present age that Adam, having sinned, had become both a victim and a participant in that war, is explained in a record of events found in Genesis chapter 3, and especially in Genesis 3.15, as well as in Revelation chapter 12. In that chapter of the Revelation, we read that there was a war, quote-unquote, in heaven. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that it occurred in outer space. We're not here to discuss that this evening. There was a war in heaven that the angels who rebelled against God were cast out into the earth and that their place was found no more in heaven. So we cannot imagine that any war is continuing in heaven. Rather, we see a woman with 12 stars flee into the desert and the woman represents Israel, the bride of God, the twelve stars being the twelve tribes of Israel, as they were also depicted as stars in the promise to Abraham, and the vision of Joseph, and the song of Deborah, and the prophecy of Daniel, and elsewhere in scripture. Then we read a little further on in Revelation chapter 12, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Quoting the King James Version. Since the enemies of Christ are not yet trodden down, this war is going on to this very day. 
In that chapter of the Revelation, we also learned that the dragon, the devil and his angels, are directly connected to that old serpent back from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. That old serpent had already represented an entire tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Revelation chapter 12, the serpent persecutes the woman and sends a flood from out of his mouth, hoping to destroy her. In a related prophecy in Revelation chapter 20, the devil deceives all of the world's other nations and brings them to battle against the children of Israel. Ostensibly, these must also be connected with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, since they do not come from God, but from the mouth of the serpent, and since they shall all be destroyed in the end. Now you might argue, oh, Gog and Magog. Well, Magog is a son of Japheth. But that doesn't mean that in this modern time, when this prophecy in Revelation chapter 20 is fulfilled, that he's not connected to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Since it's obvious that most of the other Adamic nations had been mingled and bastardized many centuries ago. Yahshua Christ had said that every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up, and Yahweh didn't plant any bastards. And therefore, that flood from the serpent's mouth, all those people that are going to be rooted up, must be connected to the tares planted by the devil at the beginning of the world, which Christ explains in Matthew chapter 13. These things are difficult to discuss at length in a short space which we have here, but we have already discussed them at great length in certain portions of our Pragmatic Genesis presentation. I think parts 17 through 21 or 22. Seeing a larger picture, how can we not understand that those of the Spirit who are enticed away by the enemies of God are not lost forever? Or else... How can Christ destroy the works of the devil, as the Apostle John professes in his first epistle? As we would more appropriately translate the passage from the Christogenian New Testament, he who is creating sin is from of the devil, since the devil sins from the beginning. For this, the Son of Yahweh has been made manifest in order that he would do away with the works of the devil. Today, while the whole world is under the power of the wicked one, many of the children of Israel have been taken away in the flood of the serpent, but ultimately none of them can be taken from the hand of the Father. As Paul said elsewhere, we battle against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, not necessarily places in space but heavenly places, which are the seats of world government and the institutions of man, and the devil inhabits them all. Even after this recent election. So while there were two trees in the garden in the beginning, there was only one tree, two trees that were metaphors for people in the garden in the beginning. There is only one tree in the city of God at the end, 
and they must also represent the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, that tree at the end, because it bears twelve types of fruit, as it is described in Revelation chapter 22. And they must also represent the twelve tribes of Israel. Concerning them alone, Christ had said in John chapter 10, that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So all of Israel shall be saved, and the Israelite cannot even lose such salvation for himself. Since in the prophets, Yahweh has promised to sanctify all of Israel. But there are no promises of sanctification for anyone else. In Yahshua Christ, the sins of Israel are forgiven in perpetuity, because Yahweh will win the larger battle against his enemies in which all Israelites are combatants of one sort or another, but in which all of the Adamic race has also fallen victim. So if Yahweh God is sovereign, then all Israel must be saved. The battle is not between Yahweh and Israel, but between Yahweh and his enemies, as Paul distinguishes them here. Those who deny this miss the bigger picture, which is drawn into Revelation and necessary to any understanding of Genesis or God's calling of Abraham in the first place. This raises another seeming conflict in Scripture, upon which the denominational Christians stumble, and the Jews in social media love to take advantage of. At the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in the Gospels of both Matthew and Luke, Christ had told his followers, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 6, But I say unto you which hear, you which hear, you which understand, love your enemies, and do good to them which hate you. Bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. However, later on, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 19, Christ says, But those mine enemies, which would not, which did not desire, that I should rule over them, bring them here and slay them before me. So the Antichrists accuse Christ of hypocrisy, because Christ admonished his followers to forgive their enemies, while he would not forgive his own enemies. However, Christ is not a hypocrite at all. David also hated the enemies of God with a perfect hatred. Christ only admonished his followers to love their enemies, but not his enemies. The words of the Sermon on the Mount are for the people of God, not for the children of the devil. They are instructions admonishing the children of God on how to treat one another, which the enemies of God remove from their context in order to deceive. The Apostle Peter called the enemies of Christ natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. They were never candidates for conversion to Christianity, and they are certainly not to be loved. Christians set aside their differences with one another for the greater good, 
but Christians should never accept the enemies of Christ. The Apostle John wrote in his second epistle, Each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not Yahweh. He abiding in the teacher, he also has the Father and the Son. If one comes to you and does not hear this teaching, does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into your house, and do not speak to welcome him. For he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. Christians must never accept those who do not accept the teachings of Christ. The teachings of Christ, not merely the name Jesus. The teachings of Christ. Which, in turn, are only for the children of Israel. In the beginning, the man which God created, before that man sinned, had communion with God. This we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, where it says, And they heard the voice of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God amongst the trees of the garden. In the end, man will have communion with God again. As Yahweh says in Ezekiel chapter 37, that my tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. But now the body of Yahshua Christ is Yahweh's true tabernacle. As Paul had also explained in Hebrews chapter 8. So in the end, there is described the city of God in Revelation chapter 21, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That city has on its gates the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, and therefore it is only they who are admitted through those gates. Then we read, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And Paul continues in verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us thereafter, having said, This is the covenant which I will devise for them after those days, says Yahweh, giving my laws upon their hearts. I will also inscribe them upon their minds, and their errors and lawlessness I will not at all remember hereafter. Paul may have simply continued to cite the 40th Psalm in relation to the law written on the hearts of the children of Israel. But ostensibly, he chose not to do so so that he could elucidate the connection to that promise with the new covenant promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and 32. So here, rather than citing just one more clause in the 40th Psalm, where he had stopped short in the middle of verse 8, he instead turns back to Jeremiah chapter 31 and repeats a part of those verses which he had already cited in Hebrews chapter 8. The people of Israel have had the laws of God written on their hearts, even without having yet turned to Christ, for which Paul commended the Romans in chapter 2 of his epistle for them. This is why even when they succumb to sin, they nevertheless understand that they have done something wrong, 
and their consciences are burdened until they repent of their sin. This is true whether or not they choose to admit their sin, and instead of ceasing from it, they continue to live under the burden of a conscience laden with sin. So sinners may choose to live in denial, but they cannot change the truth. This explains why the atheist who denies God consistently chooses to spend so much of his time arguing about religion, because he cannot relieve his own conscience. This is also why the modern sodomite forces his deviancy upon the rest of society, because seeking approbation for his sin, he hopes to relieve his own conscience, and when he is rejected, he cannot ever find such relief. This is also why the social justice warrior, who, acting contrary to the will of God, needs to force society into agreement with his own rebellion or he can never find peace with himself. These are the very people whom the Apostle Peter had written about in his first epistle, where he said that while they are astonished, they blaspheme at your not running together with them in the same excess profligacy. As Peter then proceeds to say, they shall indeed face the judgment of God. As the 40th Psalm tells us, the law was also written in David's heart. However, that came through a love of God and the study of Scripture, as David himself informs us in the 119th Psalm. He took the time <laughs> to study the Word of God and adopted it as his own, praying for understanding and conforming his mind to the will of God, which is professed in verses throughout that 119th Psalm and elsewhere in David's writings. For instance, David professed in the 37th Psalm that the mouth of the righteousness speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talks of judgment. The law of God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. So David was professed to be a man after God's own heart. As Paul of Tarsus, speaking in Acts chapter 13, said concerning the children of Israel that Yahweh had raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who shall fulfill all my will. Ostensibly, and David was a type for Christ, ostensibly, David had the law inscribed on his heart by meditating on the word of God as he explained in that same 119th Psalm, and we'll skip around a bit, I rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies, as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts, and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes, and will not forget thy word. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Thy testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. Let thy tender mercies come unto me that I may live, for thy law is my delight. Let the profound be ashamed, for they shall deal perversely with me without a cause, but I will meditate in thy precepts. Let those that fear thee turn unto me, those that have known thy testimonies. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes that I shall not be ashamed citing verses from 14 through 80 of that psalm. 
But the children of Israel are another matter in their dispersions. The children of Israel seem to have had the laws of God written in their hearts through many centuries of cultural acclamation. This Paul reveals in his discourse in Romans chapter 2, but also to the Galatians in his epistle to them, where he wrote very similarly to what he has told the Hebrews here. And he said, Then why the law? It had been imposed on account of the transgressions, until he would come, the offspring in which he had promised himself, having been arranged by messengers in a mediator's hand. And the mediator is not of one, but Yahweh is one. Therefore, is the law in opposition to the promises of Yahweh? Certainly not. If the law had been given having the ability to produce life, indeed justification would have been from of the law. But the writing has enclosed all under sin in order that the promise from the faith of Yahshua Christ would be given to those who are believing, those of the seed of Abraham, whether they kept the law or not, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, and as he reveals over the next few verses in Galatians. And in verse 23, But before the faith was to come, we had been guarded under the law, being enclosed to the faith destined to be revealed. So the law has been our tutor for Christ, in order that from faith we would be deemed righteous. That's why I say that the Israelites of the dispersions, such as the Galatians here, had the law written in their hearts through cultural acclamation in the centuries when they were in the kingdom of God and heard the law of God every week on the Sabbaths. But the faith having come, no longer are we under a tutor, for you are all sons of Yahweh through the faith in Yahshua Christ. If the Galatians had the law as their schoolmaster, then they must have been descended from the dispersions of the Israelites, as history also attests. And therefore Paul also said to them later in that same epistle, and when the fulfillment of the time had come, Yahweh had dispatched his son, having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, in order that he would redeem those subject to law, that we would recover, recover the position of sons, which they had under the kingdom. And Paul says in verse 18, Now, where there is a discharge of these... No longer is there an offering for wrongdoing, where there's a discharge of the sacrifices, the rituals of the law, and the errors and the lawlessness, where there is a discharge of the sins of the children of Israel in Christ, once in perpetuity. So the sacrifices are meaningless. There's no longer an offering for sin because there isn't one that's necessary. Thus Paul concludes this aspect of his argument, that the Levitical priesthood is supplanted by the new priesthood and sacrifice of Christ, which removes any necessity for the old covenant's rituals, sacrifices, or ceremonies conducted by man. There is nothing that man can do to save himself. And the things which he had done in the past never really saved him anyway. Only God can preserve men, and the vehicle which he has chosen to do that is Yahshua Christ. In turn, Christ only came to save those 
whom that same Old Testament God had promised to sanctify, which are the Old Testament children of Israel, as Paul himself had explained. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.